Hello, everyone, and welcome to a conversation about regulation and technological innovation. I'm Adam White, and I direct the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. It's my pleasure to, to welcome you and to welcome our featured guest, Commissioner Noah Phillips of the Federal Trade Commission. He was appointed to the commission in 2018 after a career in private practice and government service as chief counsel to Senator John Cornyn of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, hello, Commissioner. Hey, Adam. How are you? Good. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Um, just by Thanks way of background, me. just by way of background for the audience, uh, this was originally intended to serve as a as a keynote address at a conference we had scheduled in March. The, the Gray Center last year uh, hosted a private research roundtable where scholars workshopped some new papers on various aspects of technology and regulation. We were going to have a live conference to present those papers in March and then a keynote address from Commissioner Phillips. Needless to say, uh, live conferences weren't a thing anymore in March. Now, I will say in addition to this webinar, we've been taping podcast conversations with the authors of these papers. And so soon we'll release those conversations in a series, and then also the audio from today's conversation. So, Commissioner, I'm glad we're finally getting to have this conversation. Me too, um, and in part thanks to technology. Uh, that's right, that's right. Well, let's jump right in. When I teach administrative law at Scalia Law School, the FTC often serves as an example of what happens when an agency gets criticized by Congress for having done too much. These days, if anything, it seems like the FTC gets criticized for not doing enough. How would you criticize or how would you characterize the FTC's role today? Uh, so let me begin by sort of giving the caveat that someone in my position always has to give, which is the answers that I give are just mine, not necessarily those of the agency or my colleagues. You know, I think the agency today exists in a really interesting place. We enforce a number of specific statutes that Congress has passed over the years, but in the main, the FTC Act, our organic statute, which is a pretty broad statute. Now, I'm sure you teach in your administrative class that that breadth has been to some extent circumscribed by Congress over the years because of concerns about agency overreach. But the breadth of the statute allows us to target um, conduct that tends to occur throughout time despite changing conditions in the economy and despite technological development and across the development of those technologies and even bring within our ambit issues that would never have been contemplated at the time the statute was drafted. A very good example of this would be data security. The FTC moved into the data security space and there was litigation over this question, in particular in the Wyndham case. Um, and one decisions in federal courts uh, ratifying the notion that the deceptions that we could reach under our deception authority or the unfairness that we could reach under our unfairness authority could apply to novel technological context. And we live in a world of rapid innovation uh, where there are all sorts of new and innovative technologies that raise a whole boatload of new and innovative risks uh, and threats, and uh, the law can be brought to bear. Um, and that's, that's a big part of what we do. In remarks you delivered uh, at the National Press Club in early March on technological innovation and the digital marketplace, you set the scene 
by referring to what you, what you called the FTC's somewhat convoluted history. Namely, in the 1910s, the FTC was created to promote competitive markets, and it was given powers and responsibilities to that effect. Then a couple of decades later, in the 1930s, its mission was expanded to include consumer protection more directly and more specifically with unfair and deceptive acts and practices. How do those statutory mandates and the FTC's other responsibilities shape your work uh, and, and the way you look at your work uh, in these times of technological change? So a little bit of the backstory. After the agency was created in 1915, when we were created to find, you know, unfair methods of competition in the market to study and then go after them under our statute. Some of the conduct at which we began to look in the ensuing years and decades looked a lot like what we would call today consumer protection work. And in particular, it was deception, right? So firms that were out there in the market uh, polluting the market with lies or, you know, other deceptive statements whether deliberate or otherwise. And the courts pushed back on that. And so in 19, I think it's 36, there's the Raladam case where we go up on a deception theory and we claim it's an unfair method of competition that you were deceiving customers and so you got a leg up in a way that your competitors didn't. And the court said what courts today would say all the time, that isn't in and of itself a competition problem. You need to show competitive effect. And Congress responded. They responded by giving us what we now call UDAP authority. That's unfair and deceptive acts and practices authority. And it's the UDAP authority principally upon which Congress has built over the years, you know, into privacy, into credit reporting, um, into a whole host um, of different things uh, where it's firms, in particular firms facing consumers. Uh, we just did a negative option case that came out today under ROSCA, the Restoring Online Shoppers Confidence Act. That's like yet another congressional example of building on what we now understand to be consumer protection. You do see, um, in particular, uh, in, the statements, in the statements of Commissioner Chopra, you see it in some of the ideas coming out of Europe, attempts to sort of bring together those concepts to treat uh, Consume what we now think of as consumer protection cases, also as competition cases. My general view is, you know, Congress passed two different statutes and they had in mind two different things, and we ought to think about them in two different ways. Often the two align, um, but sometimes, in, in particular, depending on the kind of consumer protection uh, that you're doing or, or antitrust that you're doing, uh, they can be intentional. And so I think it's helpful to sort of think about what is the law that we're executing here and, and, and stick to that. That's, that's an interesting point. I, I guess it's very important, isn't it? That even though you have all these mandates that, that you've been given by Congress and, and you know, tools at your disposal to pursue those, and they often move in the same direction. I was just thinking, you know, competitive markets and, and good information. I mean, you often turn, you, you talk about competitive markets and consumers access to good information. Right. Those are ideally one and the same thing, right? Good information promotes competitive markets. But at the end of the day, you're given a set of statutes that you need to enforce. And so you need to be very, very careful about which statute is at issue in a given controversy. Oh, yeah. Right. And so take as an example, you know, 
with the Sherman Act presumably very much in mind, Congress in 38 gives us consumer protection authority. They don't, for instance, you know, do trouble damages, right? There are aspects of antitrust law that just don't apply. And uh, Congress makes certain judgments about the tools at the disposal of enforcers, um, you know, whether criminal tools or in our case, civil tools or, you know, private actors uh, in terms of private rights of action. And I think we need to recognize those judgments um, and limit ourselves where appropriate. Now, these are all timeless issues. Your agency is more than a century old. It's been grappling with these issues for decades upon decades. Is there anything different about what's happening right now? You focused lately, you gave remarks about a year ago um, about discussing, and here's a quote, you know, evolving technologies, automation, and intellectual property issues can increase the complexity of your antitrust investigations and litigation. I mean, I guess in some ways that's always been the case. There's always innovations. There's always new technology. Is there anything different right now about the moment for the FTC that sort of changed either the, the, the political or practical um, context in which you're doing your work? I do think that new technologies are getting a lot of political attention. Um, and the ramifications that those technologies create. I'll, I'll pick on privacy. So I worked for seven years on Capitol Hill, and we talked about privacy, and in particular, the privacy about which we talked, because these were the years that included the Snowden leak, was government access to data collected about people. I think that the attention being paid to consumer privacy, although it existed then, is much greater today. I think there is better understanding of the kinds of data being collected about people um, and greater concern about some of the ramifications of that collection, uh, whether it's just the amount of information, uh, the capacity to assimilate that information, to utilize that information, whether for advertising or other purposes, um, concern about breaches, right? As we collect more and more data, and I don't even know what the words were at, you know, terabytes or petabytes, or they keep creating words because the volume of data increases um, hyperbolically. Um, the threat of what a data breach can do on some level grows. Uh, that's one of the reasons I think we need, you know, we need a federal a data security statute. I think there's a, there's a market problem uh, that we need to rectify. And I was talking to the Senate about that um, in testimony a couple of weeks ago. But I think the, with all of the many opportunities and technologies that all of us take advantage of, that we're taking advantage of right now, um, have come certain risks. And I think people are becoming more aware of what's going on. Um, and there's a debate about what concerns you know, the law ought to address the harms. And I think that's a healthy debate. One of the interesting things about where we stand in that debate as an agency is that because of what I was saying before, the breadth of the statute and the fact that, you know, deception is one of those timeless market failures. It's something firms have engaged in since probably before, well, I wouldn't call them firms, but since before we had written them. Um, and unfairness, similarly, is pretty broad in the way that it's drafted. And that's explicitly having in mind the fact that Congress may not have ex ante been able to anticipate all of the things, uh, all of the ills it wanted to 
secure. And so I think in keeping with that statutory mandate, we, you know, we will move into new fields and look at new things uh, and try to address it best we can. We'll get back to the, the breadth of these statutes in a bit, but for now, let's just stick with the technology question. Um, with all due respect, uh, Commissioner, federal agencies are not usually at the front end of the curve on technological developments, right? Uh, you, you're in a constant game of catch up. How can a, a commission like the FTC keep up with technological innovation, both so that it's, it's mindful of, of what exactly it's, it's regulating and also mindful of, of what issues might be coming over the, the horizon that might need a, a new regulatory look? So, you know, I think there's a number of ways uh, to do that best. You know, we have special authority to gather information from the market. That's our 6B authority. It's something we've had since the beginning. But we spend a lot of time talking to uh, not only participants in industries of businesses themselves, but people who monitor them, consumer groups. Uh, Folks on Capitol Hill also always have a lot of input, you know, into what we're looking at. And I don't entirely, I mean, I agree that technology will develop quicker uh, than government is always able to meet it. I think that's just something we've seen that is true over time. Um, But we do have pretty smart people. And I think there are times when we are ahead of at least, you know, the curve of the op-ed pages um, and members of Congress in terms of what we're targeting. I'll take as an example, it's very much in the news today, but we sued a company called Musical.ly, which was sold to ByteDance and is now known as TikTok, and got them under order uh, quite some time ago, probably about a year and a half ago. I might have to date a little bit off. Um, at the time, I had not heard of TikTok, um, but the people we have working for us had. Now, my then seven-year-old also had, so maybe we ought to have a committee of like you know youngsters to help us spot trends. Um, but there are a lot of times where I think uh, we do a pretty good job at that. That said, um, technology is always going to be a. I, I don't um, know if you've heard, but the TikTok is back in the news in case you haven't heard. I just well, want right. to throw that out there. Um, yeah. Um, I remember being on a panel at the IAPP, which is like a privacy lawyers group, I think a year and a half ago. And it was sort of me and the head of the French privacy authority, the Camille. And it was a moderated thing. And we had just done the TikTok case and I brought this up and she sort of said, well, that's something we ought to look at. And lo, right, it's in the news now that they're taking a look as well. Um, But I think, look, keeping current on what people are doing online, keeping current on what the academy is putting out, uh, having technologists on board to help uh, translate into law what we're looking at, all of that is I think really important. The one thing I will add though, is some of the bad conduct that we deal with, in particular under our deception authority, uh, is conduct that is of a species that has existed for a long time. So people are deceiving about one thing, they're deceiving about a new thing. Uh, The technological context is different. Uh, The firms may be, or what their business conduct may be more difficult to understand, but the underlying wrong um, is often very similar. Before we turn to the next question, by the way, I just want to remind our audience that there will be some time for Q&A after I uh, get through my questions. And so if you would like to ask a question, just use the Q&A function in the, the Zoom platform. We're not going to use the, the hand-raising function, 
but just uh, just type your, your question in and, and I'll get through as many questions as I can with the commissioner. Um, a moment ago, you referred to your broad statutory authorities. I mean, that raises some pretty fundamental questions in terms of constitutional governance and separation of powers. The perennial question of the non-delegation doctrine, which of course the FTC uh, you know, has, has had to grapple with now for, for, for nearly a century. This is something you actually brought up one of your recent speeches, uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Gundy, one of the recent non-delegation cases. To what extent do, do you and your, and your team, or the Commissioner General, have to grapple with those sorts of constitutional issues, especially the non-delegation doctrine, as you're going through the work of applying these statutes? In the main, when it comes to regulation, right, to which the non-delegation doctrine applies, and it's, it's worthy of note that the FTC, most of what we do is what I think any, what we talk about as, and a lot of people would consider to be law enforcement who are enforcing the laws on the book. And the non-delegation doctrine doesn't really arise in that sort of case-by-case -case look at various conduct. When it comes to rulemaking, however, I think it's a more difficult issue. And what struck me, um, you know, if you go back and you read Schechter Poultry, which is one of our canonical non-delegation cases, the proposal under the NIRA is that the president be, able, president be able to promulgate codes of fair competition. And in looking at the question, the court contrasts the FTC statute. Um, unfair methods of competition, which are sort of, you know, this is like a converse in terms of the linguistics of the thing. But at the time, no one is thinking about, and the FTC won't start thinking about for half a century, the notion that you could make rules about it. So the remarks that I gave were in the context of our consideration for the first time, I think since the 1960s, of making rules about unfair methods of competition. The old story of the agency has to do with UDAP rules, right? unfair and deceptive acts and practices. And then we kind of got ahead of our skis and Congress passed the Magnuson Moss Act. So it's harder to make consumer protection rules, there was a period where the agency took the position that its authority to make rules to effectuate its jurisdiction under the statute also governed substantive rules of the economy. And the DC Circuit ratified this. We only ever made, to my knowledge, one competition rule. The proposal that we were considering when I made these remarks was to do another competition rule. And I do think you have to wonder if the words say unfair methods of competition. What does that mean? And if it doesn't have a fixed meaning, then does this raise a non-delegation issue? And I think there are some really interesting words that Justice Gorsuch wrote about what unfair methods of competition meant when they were distinguished by the Schechter Poultry Court. And I think you have to ask the question, is a rulemaking that we would undertake within the scope of that language today. And needless to say, the, Justice Gorsuch's opinion in Gundy is the, it's the dissent that, that launched a thousand law review articles and everybody's writing about non-delegation now. The Gray Center um, workshopped a number of non-delegation papers this spring that will be coming out soon. But in terms of your own remarks on this, since we brought it up, I want, if the audience is curious, um, I have in mind at least the remarks that you gave on January 9th um, on, on non-compete clauses in the workplace 
uh, examining antitrust and consumer protection issues. So full remarks are available online if people want to look them up. Um, it is funny, the statute that you referred to, these unfair and deceptive acts and practices, I mean, you look into the history of this. I mean, this is, those are very, very old concepts going back to long before there was even an FTC. Um, I think one of the challenges for the FTC is taking these old statutes and trying to figure out to what extent are we really hemmed in by those, I mean, sort of, in a way, prehistoric um, meanings. And to what extent are they, you know, open-ended either invitations or mandates to really think about um, unfair and deceptive acts and practices in, in new and innovative ways. Yeah. And we've gotten some guidance from Congress on unfairness. But on the antitrust side of the House, in terms of the unfair methods of competition, there is consensus that that goes beyond the scope of the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act. Um, and there is a policy statement that we have about how far beyond it goes. But there is a great deal of debate how far beyond it goes. Now, speaking of Congress, uh, one of the constant pressures that a commission like yours faces is uh, calls for either new rulemaking or other new forms of policymaking on issues where people could go to Congress and ask for a statute to either be written anew or refreshed and reformed to more explicitly tackle these issues. About a year ago, you had a Wall Street Journal op-ed regarding uh, the FTC's uh, investigation of Facebook, and you mentioned along the way that Quote, the FTC is a law enforcement agency, not a legislature. Why don't you describe that dynamic that the FTC faces and what you mean by that? What's the difference between the FTC being a a law enforcement agency and not a legislature? Sure. Let me expand on what I meant and maybe build out from that. So the particular context uh, of the op-ed, at this point in the op-ed, what I'm saying is that I expect a lot of people will not be satisfied with the results of the Facebook investigation, in part because it fails to address lots of issues they have with Facebook. And I go through a litany of issues that people have brought up with respect to Facebook. And I'll I'll, I'll pick on one by way of example. So there are people who really object to behavioral advertising. That is advertising that is targeted at a person based on their conduct online, what websites you visit, what you look at, for how long you look at, what you look at, uh, these kinds of data about you. And that's a fair debate. Uh, I think we ought to have that debate. I think it's part of the debate we are having. But Facebook didn't break the law in having that as part of its business practice. We didn't allege that that broke the law. And there were calls that we should end their practice of using behavioral advertising. And my view was, if they weren't breaking the law, and it wasn't part of what they were doing to break the law, and it was legal, uh, we didn't have a lot of role in addressing that. Now, sometimes we engage in what we call uh, fencing in relief. So, you know, there are fraudsters out there who are engaged in certain kinds of conduct. um, And we not only ban them from the particular illegality, but we ban them from the kind of conduct uh, that will keep them away from the illegality. I think when you're getting into conduct that is endemic in the economy, when you're getting into conduct that is legal, uh, you have to be very careful about uh, making it illegal by yourself. And this is a great example now, I think, because Congress is considering whether to adopt the privacy law, like a generalized commercial privacy law. And my message to them has been consistently, you shouldn't give us broad rulemaking authority. There are important value judgments that you need to make 
that we are less well-equipped to be. We're not a legislature. We're not as responsive to the voters. And ultimately, there are trade-offs that are going to need to be made, which really aren't a matter of expertise or, or anything you would normally think of as you know, vesting in an administrative agency. They're just value judgments. And they're fair. Um, but how we land is the kind of judgment better suited at the end of the day to Congress. We'll jump ahead to a question I thought we'd get to later, but uh, or, or also earlier this spring in late January, uh, you gave remarks there before, um, I guess it was at Stanford Law School at their Center for Internet and Society. Uh, you gave remarks titled, should we block this merger? Some thoughts on converging antitrust and privacy. And again, these remarks like your others are available online. Could you describe that debate and, and why you're wary of, of what you said is the, the convergence of, of antitrust and privacy regulation? So the debate is not new. Pamela Jones Harbor, who was an FTC commissioner before, long before I got on the commission, brought this up some time ago. But you've heard out of Brussels and other capitals in Europe, a real drumbeat to try to merge privacy and competition law. There are you know, arguments, some of which are real, better than quick, others. Real quick, real quick. What, what, could you explain that? What do you mean by, by merging? Are those, so those are two areas of law that are distinct now, and, and what, what does it mean to merge them? So people are a little less clear on what they mean, um, but they often talk about merger, and there have been conferences uh, devoted to this question. I think this concept, in terms of its real application, finds its best expression in a case recently decided by the German Supreme Court, where I'm going to simplify a little, but in essence, the Bundeskartalamt, which is the German competition authority, argued that a GDPR violation was also an antitrust violation. It was a form of abusive dominance, which is a concept under Section 102 uh, of the EU treaty. The other place that you see this come up, and, and Pamela Jones Harbor gave voice to it in the U.S., you see it coming out of the European Commission from time to time. There will be a merger of two companies, both of which will sit on a lot of data about people. And so someone will bring up, you know, should we also look at the privacy implications? My view is privacy isn't irrelevant to competitive analysis. You can have firms competing on privacy and you could have a transaction or a practice that lessened privacy, just like you know it, it raised price or um, decreased some other aspect of quality. But privacy makes this a little bit complicated as a question for a number of reasons. Two reasons that I'll pick on. The first is that consumer taste for privacy is pretty varied. People experience different marketplace conduct differently. And that's not like price. Everybody wants lower prices. So it makes the analysis harder. And distinguishing an exercise of market power from product differentiation can be difficult. That's something your colleague James Cooper has written about. The other thing that strikes me is that it's not hard to find examples of where these two concepts, not always, but can be intention. And so at the end of the day, consumer data privacy is mostly about limiting access to data. And access to data can be competitively relevant. It can be important for folks to have access. So you could imagine, I don't think they would be very popular, but you could imagine a, a network 
you know, a platform or whatever that gathered a lot of data about you and gave it to everyone. Um, and that would stoke a lot of innovation, um, but it wouldn't be good for privacy. Uh, there's a case that came before us where the circumstances that I'm about to describe aren't the case itself, but they kind of happen around the case. The company is called Unroll.me, and they help you manage your Gmail account. And the way that they the way the way that they're in business is they search your account for receipts, which they supply to Rakuten, which is a market intelligence firm. And around the time that we were looking at the firm, and I wrote about this publicly. Google decided to shut down third-party access to the contents of Gmail. Now, it seems pretty clear to me that that is a pro-privacy move, right? The contents of your email are obviously uh, something that a privacy interest would contemplate. But, you know, here was an example of a company that was using that. And so it's not clear, um, and it may very well be negative, what effect that pro-privacy move had on competition. And I think there are aspects of this all over, right? So look at the back and forth over the rollout of iOS 14, right? The new Apple operating system for the iPhone, where they're going to push to you a choice um, of how your data is collected by apps on the phone. Uh, that's a very good example of where you see these two intentions. And the fact that they are sometimes intention, not always, but sometimes, I think makes this a, a very odd place to call for moving to areas of law. I have to say on, on this issue, the uh, the iOS 14, um, you know, I'm, I'm a regular uh, reader of, of Ben Thompson's Stratechery uh, newsletter. And, Which is and he, it is terrific. He there, and like, here's some plugs for Ben Thompson and his, 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 his podcast called Dithering. He and John Gruber have been talking on and on about just how to think about things like the app store. And, and ways in which the app store might be pro-consumer or anti-consumer. It's incredibly hard to, to unpack. I suppose I, I just listen to these uh, for, for information. Uh, pity, pity the poor commissioners who actually have to think about it for, for how they're going to regulate. Um, that's, that's, that's not a question. I won't put you on the spot about it. But, um, or do you, you're about to say something? No. No. <laughs> um, but but um, it, is, it is just fascinating to play, watch this play out. And industry, in a way has its own role to play, not just as market participants, but also as forms of self-regulation, right? We have things called agency or industry best practices, right? The industry's in a way kind of regulating itself, sometimes harder, sometimes softer, but trying to do the best it can. Now there's a, you know, bad versions of that. Again, Schechter Poultry in a way was sort of uh, industry best practices elevated to the form of regulation itself, right? We, you do need government to be the regulator um, at, at times and not just sort of delegate that power out to industry. But how do you see the role of industry best practices, industry self-regulation, um, that sort of thing as, you know, maybe uh, private solutions to some of the otherwise anti-competitive or you know otherwise negative things that can that, that would come before the agency. I think fundamentally it's a positive. Uh, you gave with the Schechter poultry example one very clear way where it can go all kinds of wrong, which is that industry takes the levers of power of the government, right? They take the force of law and then they use it. And this has been a leitmotif in FTC enforcement. Uh, over decades, right, looking at licensing schemes in states in particular. And we went up in North Carolina Dental to the Supreme Court on this question 
kind of fighting the state action doctrine where it's used uh, really just to empower industry players to police themselves. That's a bad version of it. But I do think that there is absolutely a role for, um, you know, industry best practices and self-regulation to augment the work the government does. And I will tell you, you know, uh, if you take an example of the Better Business Bureau's CARU, uh, which regards children, um, that's helpful in enforcing COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. They uh, help alert us to things we ought to look at. Um, same thing for advertising. So there are a lot of these industry groups uh, that do serve a really important role in augmenting the function of government, and maybe even without the heavy hand of regulation, achieving, you know, helping to stop some of the market problems and achieving some of those benefits for consumers. Now, we do have some audience questions, and I'll turn to those now. I'll remind people if anybody else would like to ask questions, uh, go ahead and put them into the Q&A. And I'm so happy that our first two questions actually come from one of the keenest minds of, of administrative law and process in all of Washington. It's Jeff Lubbers from American University's Law School. Here's his first question, uh, Commissioner. Given your experience on the commission, how do you feel about the pros and cons of multi-member independent agency models, especially for regulating new technologies? And I'll just add, of course, this sort of has been put back into the spotlight by the Supreme Court's decision in the CFPB case, CELA Law versus CFPB, where they really limited agency independence by and large to, to multi-member commissions, sort of extolling in a way the, the, the multi-member structure. How, how do you think about that? And again, with an eye to regulating new technologies. I do think it has a virtue, right? I mean, you've got five sets of ears and five sets of eyes instead of one. There are issues in which commissioners will take particular interests and they can socialize that among their peers. Um, you've got, in, you know, in the case of the FTC, when fully staffed, which we are, five different eyes looking at cases, spotting problems. Not everyone agrees all the time. We, we have a lot of dissenting. Uh, sometimes I'm dissenting. More often, some of my colleagues are. Um, and that's, uh, you know, like all groups of people that have disagreements, it can be frustrating, but I think fundamentally it is a healthy thing. I think it helps draw our attention, uh, in good ways. And I think it helps hone our arguments, right? You know, the drafts that you see come out, even when they're dueling, they go back and forth, right? And you, you know, well, they really got the better of me in that argument, so I'm going to take it out. Or I need to address that point because that can't be left alone. It's a valid point and it needs an answer. Uh, so, you know, fundamentally, like it's a fun dynamic and I think it's a healthy dynamic. I think it adds a lot of accountability um, in terms of what we are doing and the decision-making process. I there there comes are costs and benefits to that, but I think that it's a good thing. So the, I suppose the cost comes in terms of slowing things down, right? Ham, Alexander Hanel, Hamilton's, uh, you know, executive in Federal 70 is energetic because there's just one. There's just one president. He can move right. quickly. Uh, you all have to... Article 2 is pretty clear on that. Right. So, but for, for an agency like yours, um, the deliberative process that in some way, in many ways improves its, its work, it does come at the cost of slowing things down or does it not slow things down? I think it does on some level. Yeah. The, but I do think that having checks is helpful, especially when you're talking about broadly applicable statutes, which on some level is very much part of the statutory design 
and even after what Congress has done, still is with us today. And so I think that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, and I think that is a helpful dynamic. Okay, um, and then the second question from Professor Lovers is this. It's focused not on the structure of the agency, but its processes. He writes, the normal APA rulemaking process is a time-consuming process, but the FTC must use an even more cumbersome version of rulemaking under the Magnuson-Moss Act. So cumbersome, he adds, that the agency has all but abandoned any rulemaking under the act. He asks, do you support reform that would allow the agency to follow normal APA rulemaking? So we actually have ongoing rulemaking now. The negative option rulemaking is a MAGMOS rulemaking, and we've used it from time to time over the years. It is more cumbersome, and I think that aspect makes sense in the context of potentially broad application. I think a lot of people didn't expect what the agency was up to in the late 60s and the 70s, and we went too far, and Congress put us where we ought to be. That said, we also have APA rulemaking authority in a variety of contexts. So COPPA, which I mentioned a moment ago, would be one of those. And I think it's a, it's a good mix. What I don't think you want is really broad rulemaking authority with fewer checks and balances. I think that's not the right equipoise um, you know, in our constitutional structure. Let me just add a question of my own in this theme. Uh, the FTC has many tools and, and processes at its, at its disposal, right? Adjudication and enforcement, rulemaking, um, investigations, and so on. Is, with new technologies, cutting-edge technologies, are certain processes sort of better than others? I mean, is there, for, for cutting-edge technology versus I mean, I don't mean to denigrate them, but sort of older, sleep, you know, more sleepy or more familiar industries. Does the, the change in technology really point you towards some tools more than others? I don't think so. Um, you know, resources and allocating them can be an issue. I mentioned before having technologists, and I think that's a priority around the commission to have people who focus in particular on, you know, on areas at which we're looking. But, you know, our subpoena powers, our enforcement powers, I think, are specifically intended to, and if you look at the legislative history, I mean, this is the legislative history of the FTC Act, account for the fact that markets develop over time. And part of that development is technological. Now, our, our third question, and after that, we have an open queue. So if any other audience members would like to ask questions, uh, get them in now before we wrap. Uh, ben Remily from Global Competition Review writes, uh, does, does Commissioner Phillips have any thoughts on the Qualcomm ruling? I'll admit I'm not, a, I'm, I'm, not an, a, I'm not tracking these issues, so I don't actually know what the Qualcomm ruling is, but maybe it's, it's familiar to you. So the Qualcomm ruling, uh, the FTC at the end of the Obama administration uh, brought on a party-line basis uh, a case against Qualcomm the particulars of this case require a lot of explanation, and I won't belabor this particular conduct here. Uh, the FTC won in the district court, and a few weeks ago, we lost in the Ninth Circuit. Um, how to proceed is still a question before the commission, so I don't want to comment on that in this context. Okay. Um, just a couple last questions of my own. Um, 
you're not the only agency that's involved in some of these issues, um, both in competition and other matters. You're either uh, working along with or maybe bumping into other agencies. I'm just curious how the interagency coordination process works. I mean, it's just in very, very general terms. So, you know, as a commissioner, I don't spend really any time in the interagency process. I think there are some processes in which we are involved. Uh, the day-to-day -day interagency, uh, the, to, to be honest, I'm not as clear about the role of the independent agencies within the day-to-day -day of what we often talk about of the interagency, right? So it's not like, you know, commerce and ODNI and justice and treasury showing up at a national security council meeting. Okay, and then just one last question, and it's a very self self interested one. Uh, the Grace Center, like other programs like like it, uh, are in the business of helping to to promote scholarship, helping to incubate scholarship, both on administrative law generally and focusing on you know particular themes or issues. Of course, again, that's how all this arose was was out of a roundtable that the Grace Center organized on on regulation and technological innovation. Uh, from your perspective as a, a commissioner. How can scholars and researchers, what sort of work can they do to help inform the work that you do? I mean, I think the the work of the Grace Center has been terrific. I think there are a lot of really interesting issues going on with respect to privacy and competition in particular. In terms of thinking about what the proper agency structures are to address some of these issues, some of what we've been talking about today. So you hear um, calls, I think I read an article about this last week, you know, for a new technology regulator, right? And that debate is happening in the context of legal development like SELA law, right? Where the courts are telling us what flies and what doesn't in terms of Congress's power to structure agencies. I think those questions are really interesting to study. You were talking about the sort of bevy of papers on non-delegation. I think people should look at the remarks that I gave. Uh, unfair methods of competition rulemaking um, is a heck of a power. And there's already been discussion of it in Schechter Poultry and in Gundy, uh, not with respect to rulemaking, by the way, just with respect to the meaning of the words. And I think looking more carefully at those questions is going to be a really important thing going forward. I do have one last audience question. It comes from uh, Chris Kane, who's a reporter uh, at Accurus. He says, um, Commissioner Phillips, I expect that amid COVID-19, the political will and interest in curbing certain behaviors by big tech firms may lessen a bit. Consequently, do you anticipate any changes and how the FTC allocates resources going forward in the short and near term. Again, I'm not, I, I, I myself don't, don't know what the, the premise of it is in terms of um, uh, changing certain behaviors by tech firms, but, but do you have an answer to that? Look, I'd say that tech firms remain a big focus for us. Right? The chairman set up last year uh, a task force to look at competition questions in the technology space, and that sort of matured into a formal division, what we call TED, the Technology Enforcement Division. We continue to look at mergers. The chairman put out a statement at the beginning of the crisis, uh, which I very much agree with, which did say that where firms 
are, uh, I'm going to get the wording wrong, but scrambling to provide needed goods and services to, uh, to adjust to the effects of the crisis. I mean, the example I would give, although I don't want to put words in kids' mouth, would be a company providing an online education school to a, uh, an online education tool to a school. If they're doing so in good faith, I don't think personally they ought to be the object of a lot of enforcement. But I don't think anything about COVID inoculates anyone from liability. I think at the end of the day, um, a lot of the behaviors that we saw before COVID we're seeing after, the big difference has to do with scams and frauds. Um, but the technologies <clears throat> people are using are developing. They're, probably hundreds of millions of Americans who are using Zoom today that weren't using Zoom 12 months ago. Um, fundamentally, though, I don't see a change in direction. I do want to allow for the fact that you might have, you know, a company, again, trying to provide an online education tool, tricks up on COPPA, but they're doing it in good faith. To me, that wouldn't be an a moment ago, you, you said some kind words about the Gray Center. Obviously, I'm grateful for that. You know, I, I enjoy this conversation about administrative process and structure generally. I do want our listeners to know, though, that on the, the substance of a lot of the issues that we've talked about, competition, privacy, and so on, uh, the Scalia Law School has entire centers uh, dedicated to those, in, those uh, issues in particular, um, ranging from the, the Global Antitrust Institute led by uh, one of Commissioner uh, Phillips's predecessors, uh, then Commissioner, now Professor Josh Wright. Uh, and our Law and Economics Center has the Program on Economics and Privacy uh, directed by the aforementioned James Cooper. So for folks looking for more information on the substance of a lot of these policies we've discussed, please be sure to check out those programs. Uh, Commissioner Phillips, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Adam. This, is, this has been fun. Um, and thanks to everybody for joining us today. In the months ahead, COVID-19 obviously will continue to limit our ability to convene events in person, which is unfortunate because one thing that we love to do is, is host all the, the conferences that we host each year. But in the meantime, we have plans for a variety of webinars and other events focused on new and timeless questions of administrative law, the administrative state, and constitutional government. We're also going to have a lot more podcasts. And again, as I mentioned, all the papers that were originally uh, written with an eye to a spring conference are being discussed in a series of podcasts that we will release soon. So if you don't already subscribe to our podcast and you're into that sort of thing, uh, check out the Arbitrary and Capricious podcast on our website. And also keep an eye on our website for announcements and sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, until next time. Thanks for joining us at the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the study of the administrative state.